Looking at all this, I hear what you're saying and I'm going to read all these papers because I need to understand it. When I first started, I kind of didn't really have much of an interest in the science and with our relationship, I was you know, just trusting what you said. But now I really want to understand it. I want to know what it is and what it means. But, you know, we've got all this data now. We've got all this science. You know, we're pointing towards a plant-based diet. They're all recommending a plant-based diet predominantly at the very least. Yet I'm sitting at home on a Tuesday night watching a bit of TV and I counted, there were 16 food ads between say 7.30 p.m. and 9 p.m. when I turned the TV off. 14 of which were animal, predominantly meat-based advertising. So if we've got all this data, all this evidence, why don't we have packaging for meats that say it causes cancer? That's my friend, Sean Ryan. And this is episode 93 of The Proof Podcast. Hey friends, how are you? Hope you're well, hope you're you're doing good. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. It's amazing to be back here with you again for another episode. I really look forward to it each and every week. For new listeners, welcome uh, for the first time. Thank you for finally joining us. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show physiotherapist, nutritionist, currently writing a book on nutrition with Penguin, which with a bit of luck will be published sometime later this year. I'm glad that that you found the show and, and I really do hope that you get something out of today's episode that helps you become more mindful, more conscious of, of the way that you live. That's really what each episode here is all about. It's a non-judgmental, a non-preachy space to talk about diet, something that is getting harder as every day, every week, every month goes on, it seems. So many diet wars out there. It's a space to, to talk about being mindful of our decisions and really an opportunity to sit down with inspiring people from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease and generally folks that are working hard to create positive change in the world. Today's episode is catching up with Sean Ryan, who was on the show just prior to Christmas, episode 89, I think, And in that episode, he made the decision to transition to a completely plant-based diet. If you haven't listened to that previous episode, number 89, I highly recommend going back and doing so before listening to today's episode, just to have a little bit more background context. Last episode, we went through his health, his family's health, and, and really why he wants to make some changes to his lifestyle specifically to the food that he eats. And I must say, I've been in touch with Sean most days and it's been incredible to see how many questions he has, how inquisitive he is and how quick he's picking up things. He's gone from someone that eats fast food without too much thinking to calling me and asking me if a a certain sauce has too much sodium in it, all within four to six weeks. In today's exchange, we're going to spend most of the episode 
going over his blood test results and, and talking about LDL cholesterol in particular. I know lots of you probably have had blood tests and, and have seen LDL cholesterol or LDLC as it's often written on your results. I think it's important to understand what this means. We also touch on clinical trials, looking at diet and heart disease, as well as various independent guidelines that promote a plant-based dietary pattern. I must say, I am really enjoying going through Sean's questions. It's a really good reminder for me about the common things people want to know more about and also how to explain things in a way from my end that isn't too scientific and, and confusing, which, you know, I can put my hand up. This is an ongoing challenge. It's, it is for anyone in the nutritional science space, particularly when you're reading scientific papers that are written in science lingo all day. But, but certainly this is something that I am, am working on and I want to improve on in order to become a more effective communicator. And that's what I think is really, really important. If we, if we want to shift the needle, it's great having this information, but we need to be able to communicate it in a manner which is palatable and people can act upon. As always, I hope you find this exchange thought-provoking. It's time to hear from Sean Ryan. I'll see you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones. And I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, 
is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Sean Ryan, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast. Simon Hill, thanks for having me. Mate, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. I really enjoyed our, our last episode we had where we sort of told, I guess, your backstory. Yep. And provided rationale for, for why you were wanting to perhaps change your diet and learn a bit more about nutrition. Um, and then, you know what, I was actually overwhelmed with messages and emails of people from the Plant Proof community who very much related to your story and circumstances and were inspired by what you shared and your your openness and sort of willingness to to share your own personal experience. So thank you for that and thank you for coming back on today to to follow up, to catch up with how the last month has been. Yep. Transitioning to a plant-based diet. And Quite an interesting one. Yes. Yeah, so no doubt we'll we'll explore that. And you and I have sort of been in in regular We've kept in, in touch and you've been sending questions to me and, and I've been sort of replying here and there, but we've very much saved some of the deeper conversation for today. Yep. And and I think it's more information that the listeners will also be able to relate to just like they did in the first episode. So perhaps before we go through, I guess, you know, the the transition and, and how you felt and things like that, why don't we kick this off with the blood test results because I've got those here and look you passed some areas um, but like we expected there is certainly some cause for concern when it comes to your cholesterol in particular and your your total cholesterol was 5.7 millimolars per litre which is about 220 milligrams per deciliter for anyone from the United States. I might actually use the milligrams per deciliter readings because they're sort of a bit more universally accepted. Specifically, what is sort of most important for us to look at here is the the LDL cholesterol and what's called the non-HDL cholesterol. If we start with the LDL cholesterol... Your LDL cholesterol came in at 150 milligrams per deciliter. Now, if you if you sort of look across the recommendations and guidelines around the world, usually they will state that below a 100 is optimal. We'll come to in a little bit why, in fact, you might actually want it lower than 100, down more towards 50 or 70, and then we can talk about how you can lower it, various ways that you can lower it, and whether it's through diet and, and, and medications and things like that. And we'll also talk about what's raising it. Why is it high in the first place? Yep. And, and look, I'm not saying that you need medications. You're not at the level where someone would routinely be prescribed with a... What, what is that level though? So that level of when someone would usually be subscri- um, prescribed is, is more so around 190 
but it can also depend on the existence of other risk factors as well. Okay. So let's, let's start off with LDL, LDL cholesterol. We see this term on blood tests. What is it? What causes it to rise? We see people talking about it on the internet a lot. And I think that people sort of have a, a general idea that LDL cholesterol is the bad cholesterol, but perhaps don't really know an awful lot about it beyond that. So let's start with what, okay, what do we know from a dietary point of view causes your LDL cholesterol? Is LDL the bad one or not? Yes. So I'm going to come to that. I'm just saying in general, I think the public understand that LDL cholesterol is is bad and they see HDL's cholesterol as good. Now, through this conversation, I'll make this a bit more clearer. Okay, so just follow me here. Yep. So firstly, what causes, from a dietary point of view, what causes our LDL cholesterol to go up? Okay, and I'm specifically talking about diet here because there are other factors. Some people have genetic predisposition to, to high cholesterol, uh, and usually they find that out very early in their life. And we'll, we'll touch on why it's actually important to look at that subset of the population in a bit because they have very high incidence of cardiovascular disease. So dietary components that raise LDL, trans fats, everyone agrees on that. We know that um, a lot of countries have banned trans fats. I'd like to see that happen in Australia. I know that there's definitely been some changes in terms of labeling and, and how much can be used in products. I tend to find trans fats in there in there a lot of ultra processed foods and, and margarines and things like that. Aren't, aren't those illegal in some countries? They are. So in about four countries, they're illegal and America has made them illegal. I believe that comes, I believe, and, and someone might correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a recent change and then brands and companies have like a, a 12 or 18 month window to update and to change their packaging and change their formulation. So I think currently it's like in that holding pattern. But 2020, 2021, they should be completely out of the system. So that's trans fats. They're also found in animal products naturally as well. Then we have saturated fat. So saturated fat definitely increases LDL cholesterol. And that's that's what your chips are cooked in and... Saturated fat, there are different types of saturated fat, yep. which is also very important, and they can, to a diff- to a varying extent, affect your LDL cholesterol. The most saturated fat in the Western diet is actually from dairy and meat. So it okay. comes from milk, red meat, and cheese. Yeah, I always thought for some reason saturated fat was the oils. and A lot of those oils are you know, fried in, there is going to be some saturated fat in there, but a lot of those are fried in seed oils and canola oils and, and whatnot. Separate conversation there. The, the types of, I guess, fats from a cooking perspective that are high in saturated fat are butter and coconut oil, ghee, things like that. So most saturated fats in the typical Western diet come from dairy and red meat, which is why there is so much recommendations to reduce those foods. And then you've I just touched on coconut oil. Coconut oil and palm oil tend to be, they're really the only plant-based foods that are super high in saturated fats. Coconut oil is like 90% saturated fat. And there was just a a meta-analysis was just published. And meta-analysis is a study where the researchers, instead of just doing one study, 
they have gone and, and grabbed a pool of studies that have all looked at that and then they combine their data. So, you know, studies from around the world, presumably. And the reason, you know, meta-analysis are not without their own flaws here and there, but the 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 reason meta-analysis are considered a superior form of evidence is that you are less likely to have bias when you're pulling in together the results of yeah. multiple studies. Yeah. And if they're if they're all showing a significant difference, then that likelihood the likelihood that there is a cause and effect relationship is higher. So that's saturated fat. We've done trans fats. Dietary cholesterol is an interesting one. And we might just quickly touch on this because, you know, for many years people thought when you eat diet, dietary cholesterol is responsible for, you know, high LDL cholesterol. And that it is true. The, the cholesterol that you eat does affect your LDL cholesterol, but it's it's to a much lesser extent than saturated fat and to trans fats. And in fact, the extent to which it affects your LDL cholesterol, so that's the, the high marker on your blood test, is really determined what it's packaged with. When it's coming in the diet with a lot of saturated fat, it has a more pronounced effect. Now, the problem is cholesterol is only found in animal foods and a lot of the time it's coming in with saturated fat particularly in the Western diet. So it does have an effect. It, it affects your overall uh, LDL level by about 10 or 15%. And the other sort of myth, I guess, about dietary cholesterol that I see pop up uh, on social media, and you might you might see this and think, oh, that's different to what Simon said. Um, I see people talking about the fact that we need cholesterol in our diet. Doesn't our body produce yeah, cholesterol? This is, a, this is a huge myth. And anyone that understands physiology, Anyone, like any credible science knows humans do not need to eat dietary cholesterol. It, it is not an essential nutrient. It, pretty much every cell in our body can make cholesterol and our liver makes cholesterol. But with, with, with everything you've been saying, what does the cholesterol, what are the negatives of a high cholesterol? Is that, you know? Yeah, so we're going to get into that. So I'm yep. going to talk you through, at the moment we're talking about why does it increase? Yep. And then I want to talk to you about, okay, well, why is that important? Like, what's wrong with having high LDL? What are these guys doing? Because, yeah, I, I mean, I don't need medication. So yeah, you don't need medication, but you are, you're in the, the, the high limit. Yeah. You, you are considered um, not within the optimal range. Okay, so the optimal range is considered below 100. You're sitting at 150. Okay, we're going to come to, I'm going to show you a graph that I have that shows the percentage chance that you have plaque buildup. So there's a beautiful graph that I have done by a study in 2017, American College of Cardiology, which shows based on what your LDL is, what the percentage is that you have atherosclerosis and what the percentage is that you <laughs> I'm not done. sure that I want to see that. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you that. But just keep with me as I move you through these dietary components that affect LDL. So we've done saturated fat, we've done trans fats, we've talked about dietary cholesterol. I've told you that dietary cholesterol, you don't need to eat it. You, every cell in your body will make it. And the next one, which is often overlooked, is, is soluble fiber. So soluble fiber helps reduce your cholesterol. There's multiple mechanisms, but it essentially, it, it, it helps promote more cholesterol clearance removal from your body. And of course, fiber is only found in plant foods. You can think of fiber as the bones of a plant. It's kind of like what what keeps them upright. It's the structure, so to speak. The structure. 
So you can sort of understand when you when you look at this, you go, okay, well, saturated fats driving LDL cholesterol up, trans fats is driving it up, dietary cholesterol to a lesser extent is driving it up, and fiber drives it down. And you start to go, okay, well, people that are getting a lot of calories from animal foods and from processed foods that have trans fats and not getting much whole plant foods, they're ticking all these boxes for dietary risk factors associated with increasing their LDL cholesterol. Now, to your point earlier, why is this bad? What's what you know, what's wrong with these LDL particles or LDL cholesterol? And let me first clarify what I mean with that because LDL cholesterol is often confused for LDL. And I think we need to sort of just step back and and in in very top level terminology, I'll walk you through how our body transports cholesterol. So our liver will make cholesterol. Some people who eat animal foods will get a bit in through their diet, but just like fats. So we call cholesterol and other fats in our body, we call them lipids. You may have heard of that term before, but these lipids, cholesterol and fats, basically the fats that you eat, they need to get transported through the blood by a protein. And the easiest way to think about this is imagine your blood vessel. Think about your artery right now. Think about it. It's full of blood. And think about that as that's the ocean. Okay, so you've got this this round tube. You've got water in the middle of it. That's the ocean. Now, these cholesterol and these fats need to move through there, but they can't. They're not soluble. So they have to be carried. They have to be transported. So let's think about that as a shipping container. So the containers on top of the shipping container are the fats and cholesterol sitting on top. And underneath is the protein. That's what's going to carry it, okay? now Which is the ship itself. That's the ship itself. And these ships are called lipoproteins. So there's a whole bunch of different lipoproteins in, the, in, the, in our blood which are carrying lipids, carrying, when I say lipids, that's carrying triglycerides. We don't need to really go into that, but just think about it as the fat you eat and, 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 and also carrying cholesterol. And they're transporting it through the blood. Why? Because they have to transport it around the blood so then our cells can actually use it, right? Cholesterol has important functions. It's important. We do. That's why our body does make some, right? The, the problem comes when you have too much, and we'll come to that. So hear me out. You've got these proteins carrying cholesterol, carrying triglycerides, and there are different types of proteins in the blood, and they're varying sizes, now, LDL is called low-density lipoprotein. That is one type of ship that is getting around in the blood. Now, why is this one one that we're zooming in on? Why is this so important? Well, it turns out that whether it's fluffy or buoyant, as you'll sometimes see people blog about, it is able to penetrate into the artery wall and get stuck. So if you think about... Again, you've got the ocean, you, the, the boat, and then you've got your artery vessel. Imagine the boat crashing in to the sides of the vessel, doing that over and over and over. And the more of those particles, the LDL, these low-density lipoproteins carrying cholesterol through the blood, the more of these shipping containers there are, the more bumping into the artery wall. Now, they are of a size, which in, science, in scientific terms is defined as less than 70 nanometers, if a lipoprotein is less than 70 
nanometers, which is what all the LDL particles are. And there's another aspect to it called ApoB, which is the name of the protein. Don't worry about that. It's going to confuse things for now. But if it's under that size, these guys can hit the wall and get trapped. And that's what starts the process of artery clogging or atherosclerosis is what we call it. So you hear about people talking about plaque buildup. That's that process. As the plaque's building up, the artery is becoming narrower and narrower. And then that can get to a point where it either blocks blood flow or it breaks off, keeps traveling through the blood and blocks somewhere else, like blocks somewhere else up in the brain and causes a stroke. It making sense so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So You're still here. Now, what we know is some people say, okay, well, you know what? It's not just LDL though because you can have high LDL and it doesn't matter as long as you don't have inflammation or you don't have high blood pressure. And they'll point to other, they'll, they'll theorize about the fact that high LDL in, in and of itself is not an independent risk factor. But that's wrong. High LDL is an independent risk factor. That means if you have it, whether or not you have inflammation or not, you're going to get more of those particles hitting and getting lodged into the artery wall and more plaque buildup. Yes, if you have high blood pressure and you have inflammation and you have insulin resistance and a whole bunch of other things, it can be worse. But, but it's still got an issue in itself. But we do know that in, yes, in and of itself, from multiple levels of science, from epidemiology, from genetic studies, looking at people who have been born with a genetic variation that raises their LDL, and looking at randomized controlled trials where we take a drug and we give them a drug that lowers their LDL and we see significant reduction in their cardiovascular disease, independent of inflammation, mind you. And I can put those studies into the show notes for anyone that wants to look at that because often inflammation is spoken about like, oh, you know, you, you have to have inflammation for the plaque to build up. And there are studies showing that you can drop someone's LDL cholesterol independent of their inflammation markers uh, dropping and improve their cardiovascular disease risk. So if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, 
go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So basically to wrap that up in a way, just in layman's terms, what you're saying is high LDL cholesterol equals the higher risk and a higher chance of plaque building up within my arteries, in turn causing a heart attack or a stroke. That's right. So we've got to get that under 100. Well, actually, that brings me back to that graph that I wanted to show you because you may actually want to get it below 70, not actually below 100. So I've got a, a graph here that I'm going to get you to look at. And again, I'm going to put this into the show notes. But essentially, what it shows is... It's a, it's a beautiful chart showing the, the percentage chance of having artery clogging with different levels of LDL cholesterol. So there is everything from 50 or 60 all the way up to 150 to 160. Now yours is at 150, so you're actually all the way on this high spectrum. So the chance of you not having atherosclerosis based on this graph is about 40%. So you have about a 60% chance that you have plaque build up already. Now, before you freak out, we're going to come to some studies that have shown that you can actually reverse that. Okay. Okay. So. Because I'm freaking out a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the point of me showing you this is to show you the LDL cholesterol is an independent risk factor and they've charted it here and they show based on your LDL how much risk you have for developing atherosclerosis and I'll put this in the show notes because it's great for anyone who has gone and got a blood test. So no LDL cholesterol is present in plant-based diets, is that correct? Okay, let me just go back. Remember what what I said increases cholesterol? There's a good point. So yes, there's no dietary cholesterol in a plant-based diet. However, there is still saturated fat. So if you're slamming heaps of coconut oil and heaps of palm oil, 
there's still a lot. And also, in avocado and nuts and seeds, you're never going to have a diet without any saturated fat. That's not the point. The point is, when you're eating a lot of animal products, it's very hard. The, the, the amount of saturated fat you're eating is a lot higher than what you're eating in a whole food plant-based diet. Yeah, okay. Okay. Now, the other thing to keep an eye, keep in mind is trans fats. You can eat a very unhealthy vegan junk food diet. And there's a study 2019 that did look at a, a plant-based index of healthy versus unhealthy and showed if you do an unhealthy plant-based diet, you have increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So, and that's probably a culmination of, you know, whether it's trans fats or saturated fats in these processed foods, you know, refined sugars and, and a whole bunch of things. But essentially, to your point, yes, when you're moving from a diet made up of animal products to a diet that is plant-based but has a focus on whole food, your cholesterol will go down. And there's a beautiful study, 2007 uh, study. There's a lot of these. This is one example. Pretty much every single population study that you go in and look at, actually every one that I've seen, if you look at a population that has vegans, has you know, various forms of vegetarians, because some vegetarians eat eggs, some eat eggs and dairy, uh, pescatarians and omnivores. And if you go in and look at them and you look at their LDL levels, it's a stepwise reduction. And in fact, this study, the 2007 study that I wanted to show you, uh, it, this is out of Brazil. So they, they had a, a group from Brazil of vegans, lacto-vegetarians, lacto-ovo-vegetarians and omnivores. And they charted their LDL levels. Actually, just before I do give you their results, let me go back to that graph because I just realized I missed something that's really important. So you know how I said most of these guidelines say get, get your LDL below 100? Well, what's really interesting is that, in fact, the only group on, the, on their graph that has zero risk of atherosclerosis is 50 to 60. Those that were between 60 and 100 still had risk. In fact, 90 to 100 still had a 30% risk. And this is why there are various experts, people around the world saying that, in fact, those guidelines, we should be lowering it. And they've really just been made based on an unhealthy population in Western populations. That's where the sort of guidelines been come from. Trying to manage a population opposed to... Correct. And as opposed to looking at, well, what's the, what's the LDL we want that 0% risk. And then what's really interesting is if you go and look at whether it's our sort of primates and animals who share a similar physiology to us but do not get atherosclerosis at all, they don't get it. But their, their LDL cholesterol is between 50 and 70. So is there an unhealthy level of cholesterol? So if your cholesterol is only at 30 or 40, is there a, a flip side to this or...? I think that's a, it's a it's a great question, and there's some science coming around now around uh, risk of stroke when you're older if it gets too low. It's not really it's not definitive. Right now, we know definitely you know between that 50 to 100. If you want to go according to you know the, this latest science and what a lot of experts are saying, they're saying trying to get it between 50 or 70, which is on par with what primates their cholesterol levels are who do not get atherosclerosis on par with what babies are born with before they start living and it starts increasing but if we go to that 2007 brazil study the one that i said where they had vegans the two different vegetarians and omnivores the only group that was between 50 and 70 was the vegans 
than the lacto uh, vegetarians was at 87, the lacto ovo vegetarians at 101, and the omnivores at 123. And the average American is sitting at about 130 to 140. So in fact, your cholesterol is higher than the average American right now. Now, as I said, before you freak out, this can be reversed. And I think it's also worth appreciating, we're talking about LDL cholesterol. And there may be some people here listening who are right across the science. And and I think without having to explore all of these in detail, because it'll take us another couple of hours, there are other risk factors, even though LDL is an independent risk factor, there are other dietary components that can increase someone's risk of developing cardiovascular disease. You know, things like refined sugars, high fructose, corn syrup, heme iron, you know, animal protein, just to name a few. But as you're moving from your old diet to a whole food plant-based diet, you're ticking all of these things off along the way. And the studies that I was referring to that have shown you can reverse cardiovascular disease, you can actually melt away that plaque, the buildup, they have used, there was, there's two studies, one used a low-fat vegan diet and the other used a, a low-fat vegetarian diet. It was essentially a vegan diet, but they had a bit of dairy in there and they took fish oil tablets. And I have a little image here. This is a very basic image for you to see, but essentially the progress of shrinking plaque through dietary changes. But how much damage would I have, I mean, I've eaten, a, a, based on the knowledge I've acquired in the last month, I've eaten a poor diet majority of my life. So, you know, from a young age, have I been building up plaque in my arteries? Yeah, well, there's actually science. I think we might have gone through this in the last episode, but we can we can go back over it. There's actually science, you know, if your mother has really high cholesterol, you can start getting streaks on your artery, fatty streaks before you're even born. And then depending on your diet, as soon as you're born, it can start, you can start getting fatty streaks towards your late teenagers, early 20s. That's when plaque, actual plaque can start to, to build up. And that's, I, I think I referred to the Korean War study where they had soldiers who were killed by, by gun wound and they did autopsies on their bodies and these were these were you know otherwise healthy soldiers american soldiers you know average age of like 22 years and they had you know from sort of moderate all the way to severe blockages in their arteries and that was like a a landmark study showing that hey even though the the symptoms of cardiovascular disease the the angina the heart attack often sudden cardiac arrest the stroke or, 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 you know, whatever else, heart failure, even though, or erectile dysfunction, even though these symptoms tend to come in that fourth or fifth decade, it's brewing long before that. Mm. These, are, these are chronic diseases for a reason. So, you know, what we're talking about here is we've got your blood test results. We look at that chart and there's a 60% chance that you have some plaque buildup. However, Studies have been done showing when you remove these animal products, you remove this beef, you remove the, the eggs, you remove the, the, the dairy in one of the studies, remove this from your diet and compared to controls that do not do that, you get shrinkage, you get significantly less risk of having cardiac arrest. And the fact that you're, you know, what are you, are 33, 32, 33, you still got time to unwind this disease. 
you know, these, these. How long does it take? Though? Well, these people in these studies, you know, weeks, weeks, depending on how long and how much plaque there is. But, but in terms of the reversal process can start, you know, how long is it going to take to completely shrink and, and completely reverse is another question. But the sooner you start, the better. These guys in this study were looking at people with severe cardiovascular disease that already had events before. You know, they'd had blockages for, for five, five decades, five, six decades probably. So, you know, the fact that you're looking at this now is extremely positive because you can make changes, you can improve the blood flow, you can reduce so that buildup. In, in saying that, you know, dad passed away at 53. If someone's, if someone's in their latter, latter years of their life or, you know, in that fourth, fifth decade and they start, you know, changing their life now and they start, you know, moving towards a plant-based diet, is that going to have a significant effect opposed to, you know, will that, if they've built that this, you know, the blockages within their arteries up uh, over the course of 50-odd years and then they start a plant-based diet now, is it really going to have enough time to, you know, cause effect? Well, these studies would suggest that it is. You know, they show significant, compared to, to those in the studies that don't make dietary changes or just adopt a sort of control diet, a typical sort of diet of moderation, they have significantly less cardiac events and significantly less death. So why aren't cardiologists all around the world, Australia in particular, obviously being from Australia, uh, recommending like the first thing, someone comes in, they're having issues, they've had a blockage or, or something rather, why isn't the first thing it's they say? Great question. To them? And if any cardiologists are listening, I'll tell them to refer to the 2019 American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association Dietary Guidelines, which clearly state to to adopt a plant based or Mediterranean diet. And they make it very clear and it's in there. And I posted about it on social media today. And within that, if you look at the, what they say about so they say plant based or Mediterranean. Now But isn't Mediterranean got you know, animal-based products in it. Yeah, so let me explain the Mediterranean diet to you. And, and just before that, they say plant-based or Mediterranean, and then they go in and they talk about the PREDIMED trial, which is, a, is you know, in, in fairness, probably one of the best long-term randomized controlled trials that we have on dietary intervention. These, they're doing a dietary intervention trial as a randomized controlled trial, which is basically take people from the public, randomize them, put them on different diets, uh, make sure they stick to those diets and follow them for time. These are very expensive and very hard trials to run. So we don't have a lot of them. Most of the studies that we have are epidemiology, observational studies, which is instead of that, we just go to a population that's already eating a certain way and we look at the yeah. you know, the, the disease incidence. But they, you know, whilst they're they're very valuable, they do come with some limitations. But the the PREDIMEDS study of the trial and, and within this American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology guidelines, they make it very clear that the benefits of that Mediterranean diet were significantly more pronounced when they analysed the results again afterwards and looked at one's ability to stick to a largely vegetarian version or healthful version of the Mediterranean diet. Because the traditional Mediterranean diet as described by Ansel Keys in the 1950s when he essentially come up, came up with the hypothesis that saturated fat was causing heart disease in, in his study, in the Seven Countries study. He described the Mediterranean diet as a largely vegetarian diet. And when we look at the PREDIMED studies, the PREDIMED trial, 
whilst those eating a Mediterranean diet had about a 30% lower cardiovascular disease risk than controls who basically didn't really change their diet that much, it was only significant for stroke. The Mediterranean diet didn't significantly change heart disease outcome or premature death. However, when they went and analyzed it further and they said, okay, let's look at those in the Mediterranean diet that, that, stuck, that stuck to a more vegetarian style diet, they had a 41% less risk of premature death compared to controls. And what this tells us, again, is that the Mediterranean diet is healthful not because of the animal proteins that it includes. It's healthful because of the amount, the abundance of whole plant foods. And the more of those that are in that diet, the better the health outcomes. Now, the confusion arises because if you Google Mediterranean diet, you see sheep's feta, you see pizza, pasta, olive oil, fish. You I'm see- thinking Subalakis, right? Okay, so we like to to, <laughs> to post uh, and glamorize the Mediterranean diet for, for all the things, the indulgent aspects of it. I'll call it that, right? But, and that's fine. I understand that pizza, pasta, this stuff's great. It tastes great. I, I completely understand how this has occurred, but- we have to come back to the science. The science looking at the Mediterranean diet showing better health outcomes is looking at the traditional, a traditional Mediterranean diet that is largely vegetarian and has a real focus on calories, maximizing calories from whole plant foods. When you understand that and you look at the the, the other studies showing a reversal of cardiovascular disease with a, with a completely or almost completely whole food plant-based diet, the picture becomes quite clear that you know, when it comes to your heart health and and your artery health, we want to minimize calories from animal products. We want to maximize calories from whole plant foods. That's, you know, somewhat going into a lot of detail. And But you're following. You're, you're following, oh, yeah, 100%. You're following where, where I'm going with that. And, you know, as, as our conversations progress... We can go into even more detail, and we can, you know. I, just, I, I guess, I guess where I'm where, where I'm coming from here is, I just still don't understand why a cardiologist isn't when someone walks in the door, plant based diet. You want to minimise your, your, yeah. Instead, it's medication and putting put in a stint. This is th- th- this is very complex. Now, okay, you mentioned medications and and, and stents, and and they're they're revenue generating. And I'd like to think that most doctors are not first thinking about revenue. But we also have to acknowledge that majority of doctors had very little nutrition training. That's not their fault. It's a Yeah, it's, you mentioned the last last podcast. Yeah, it's a product of of their curriculum. And that's changing. It's changing very fast. However, we you know, to be fair, this is changing. This landscape is changing fast. And I guarantee if cardiologists are listening, or even if they're not and someone knows someone, they're looking at diet now and they're looking at it with more attention. You, you can't ignore it now. We, we understand, you know, I referred to the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association 2019 guidelines, right? That, get, that goes out and cardiologists read it around the world. And it makes it very clear that within the list of risk factors, and there are a lot of risk factors, there is, you know, obesity and alcohol consumption, smoking and all that sort of stuff. But when it gets to diet, it makes it really clear what a healthy dietary pattern is to prevent and reverse. And that's a plant-based diet. And that's going to be a plant-based or a very <clears throat> plant-focused diet. The reason that it doesn't just, just say plant-based is people say, well, why doesn't it just say plant-based? And that's because, honestly, we don't have the science that pits a plant-based diet up against 
a high-quality Mediterranean diet done well in a randomized controlled trial uh, intervention study and monitors them over a long term. Do I wish that science is done and comes out? Of course, but for the moment, all the science, not just from those studies, but from everywhere, the, all the epidemiology we have, it all points in one direction. Maximize your calories from whole plant foods. Now, if you can get all the way to 100% and you can do it in a manner that is appropriately planned and you're getting all the nutrients you require, you're ticking all the boxes. And how do you know if you're getting all the nutrients you require? So this is something that I've, I've addressed in my book. It's funny because as you start exploring health and, and food, you start wondering about nutrients, right? But for the last 30 years and for most people's life, they just eat and they're eating junk food and they're eating, you know, they're just eating, you know, meat pies and, and beef, beef, uh, beef lasagnas and, and whatnot. And, and considering nutrients is just not even in the picture. So usually people that focus in on nutrients, they're actually the people that have started reading and want to take their health to the next level. So I understand that. I've covered this in my book. There are five or six nutrients of focus. I think perhaps next episode, because we almost need to dedicate five or 10 minutes to each. Yep. These are nutrients of focus that people that are removing animal products, you know, they do need to keep an eye on. Now, at the same time, there are a bunch of other nutrients that omnivores need to keep an eye on that they're in in risk of getting in inadequate amounts because of consuming too much processed food or too much animal products and not enough whole plant foods like folate, for example. But essentially what I'm saying is if you adopt a 100% whole food plant-based diet like you have and you do it in a sensible manner where you're appropriately planning it, this is endorsed. This is endorsed you know, by leading organizations across the world. I've got the position here of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And the reason I'm showing you this is because some of your questions you sent me through or links that I know that people in your friendship group had shared with you. And I think it's great that they're sharing and taking interest into what you're doing. I, I, I don't. I don't. Like, they didn't care until I said I'm, I'm going plant-based. All of a sudden, that's the worst thing in the world. You yeah. need to eat meat. Let me, let me, I'll come to that and sort of why it's to be expected that they're going, that people will re react like that. So I don't think they're necessarily picking on you and, and we'll come to that. But let me read out the position of Academy of Nutrition uh, and Dietetics. They say it is the position of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics that appropriately planned vegetarian, including vegan diets are healthful, nutritionally adequate, and may provide health benefits for the prevention and treatment of certain diseases. These diets are appropriate for all stages of life cycle, including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, adolescence, older adulthood, and for athletes. Plant-based diets are more environmentally sustainable than diets rich in animal products because they use fewer natural resources and are associated with much less environmental damage. Now, you'll see people posting memes and you know carnivals online posting things. These guys are uh, distorting the science and they, they just want attention. They want to grow a profile. When you look at the independent science and from leading organizations, this is the position. Let me carry on. Vegetarians and vegans are at reduced risk of certain health conditions, including ischemic heart disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, certain types of cancer, and obesity. Low intake of saturated fat and high intakes of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, soy products, nuts and seeds, all rich in fiber and phytochemicals are characteristic of vegetarian and vegan diets that produce lower total and low density lipoprotein cholesterol levels, and better serum glucose control. These factors contribute to reduction 
of chronic disease, vegans need reliable sources of vitamin B12, such as fortified foods or supplements. So I think that pretty much summarizes everything that we've been speaking about. And on top of that, if you look at the USDA dietary guidelines. What's the USDA? So the USDA is essentially it's a government body in America that is responsible for, for bringing out the dietary guidelines for the country. And they're about to bring out their new ones, but the current ones, there's a sentence in there without them saying to eat a plant-based diet, although they do endorse a vegetarian diet, they say to eat as little cholesterol as possible. And if you think about that, cholesterol is found pretty much in every single animal product, except for, say, egg whites and honey. It's found in no plant foods. So if they're telling you to eat as little cholesterol as possible, that's essentially saying endorsing a plant-based dietary pattern. So that's the USDA guidelines. That, that was the, Before that was the position of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Then I think we have another two sort of guidelines or recommendations that are worthy of looking at. And I'll put all these in the show notes. And this is just to give you more confidence that, you know, someone can send you a link of an anecdote. Somewhere. Yeah, I, I need these links to throw back yeah. at the people you know, that are... And I understand, like, someone can... We all have anecdotes. There are anecdotal experiences everywhere. And I think the, the anecdotes are definitely interesting, right? But we have to ask ourselves, do we want to base our personal health choices which, and our health choices of our family, which is so important, off an anecdote of someone who is usually not qualified? Or do we want to go to position statements and, and consensus papers from, from the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology, mind you, which stated that the 10-plus cardiologists involved were not allowed to have any industry ties for 12 months prior during it or 12 months after. And also what's great about the, you know, that paper is that they're not all vegans. Most of them eat animal products. They came in a room and said, guys, let's not let industry affect what we put out here. Let's put out dietary recommendations that are genuinely going to help reduce cardiovascular disease. So coming back to, you know, where do you want to get your information from? It's, it's fine to look at anecdotes and to use that as a basis for further research, which is great because that's, you know, part of the reason we're here today. So, you know, if people share such information with you, I think, you know, accept it, say thank you for sharing it, you'll read it, you'll listen to it, and then essentially you, you come back to, you know, what, how do you, what's your hierarchy of, of sort of evidence? How do you want to weight evidence? And you make your own sort of decisions from there. The other two that I mentioned that I would, you know, we should probably briefly just touch on is, is Health Canada. So Health Canada 2018 guidelines came out for their, you know, the Canadian public, which actually they came out and said for the first time they're not going to let industry influence their guidelines. They come out, they pr promote a largely plant-based diet. They say choose plant protein over animal protein and they remove dairy from the required food groups. And that sort of spoke volumes given that they said, we're no longer going to be impacted by industry influence. And then the Eat Lancet paper. So that was a paper again, same year, 30 independent scientists. And they said, okay, let's come up with a diet that is going to help human health, at the same time help planetary health, and at the same time considers the entire world. You know, 
developing countries who perhaps don't have as much access to, to certain foods because, you know, what we're sitting here and having a conversation in the context of an element of privilege, I think and definitely in some populations adopting a plant, a completely plant-based diet is a privilege because of food access and food security. So these guys considered that and came up with what they called the planetary health diet. I, I actually crunched, they did a, an example, 2,500 calorie diet. And I went in and calculated what percentage of calories were from animal products and it was 12%. And then within that, it was 14 grams of red meat per day, which is nothing. That's like you know, the size of your thumb. Yeah. So I just like looking at all this and I, I hear what you're saying and, and I'm going to read all these uh, papers because I need to understand it. When I first started, I had kind of didn't really have much of an interest in the science. I just wanted to know what is. And with our relationship, I was, you know, just trusting what you said. But now I really want to understand it. I want to, I want to know what it, what it is and what it means. But, you know, we've got all this data now. We've got all this science where you know, we're pointing towards a plant-based diet. They're all recommending a plant-based diet predominantly at the very least. Yet I'm sitting at home on a on a Tuesday night watching a bit of TV and I counted, obviously being you know, having a focus on marketing, you do little things like this. And um, there were 16 food ads between uh, the, you know, say 7.30 p.m. and 9 p.m. when I turned the TV off, 14 of which were animal, predominantly meat-based advertising. So if we've got all this, all this data, all this evidence, and it is real and it is, it is what you're saying it is, which I do trust that it is, why are we – it's like, you know, we, we've abolished all cigarettes advertising, yet we've got this evidence. Why are we allowing this sort of – you know, it should be something that – like a cigarette smoker, they go and buy their cigarettes, they've got their packaging. Why don't we have packaging for meats that say – you know, the class one, is it synogen? Carcinogen. Carcinogen. Class one, it's, it causes cancer. Yeah, well. Consuming this right. food uh, and causes Processed cancer. meat is a, is a class one carcinogen, which yeah. is, a, you know, known to, to cause cancer. Look, this is actually something I've penciled in perhaps for a second book because I think it is worthy of, of deep discussion. But I think also if you, you know, you mentioned smoking. You know, smoking played out since the 1940s. There was decades of people dying of lung cancer. They were dying despite the science being there. The science was withheld from the public because these tobacco companies were spending so much money on advertising that even the doctors smoked. And, and you know what? If you go out and you surveyed the average doctor's diet right now, they're not all eating according to all these, all this science that I'm telling you about that's pointing towards plant-predominant or, or what's, completely plant-based diets. What? But where I'm going with that is, unfortunately, this reliance on, on animal products and this belief that animal products are healthy and are manly and things like that, that's been indoctrinated into us over decades. You know, I can remember being a kid and... There was, you know, dairy milk sponsorships at my school. I think I, actually, I won't mention the name of that milk company, but you know, there are. Th this is a strategy. There is marketing strategies behind making us addicted to these foods, and we have to understand that it's it's not regulated right now. As you say, you you see lots of advertisements about junk food. We don't have sugar taxes here in Australia, which you know have been implemented into other countries. It's a, it's a really complex issue. For those that are privileged enough to sit down and listen to this episode 
and can listen, you know, they have the time and the resources to listen to a podcast, I hope that they can can go and make these decisions and take it into their own hands because if you sit around and wait for our environment to change, like I said, you know, millions and millions of people... You're not going to be around for it to change. Millions of people died of lung cancer over the decades where we knew that smoking was causing lung cancer, but unfortunately... It, it hadn't sort of hit the mainstream in terms of, you know, warnings on, on packets, doctors telling their patients not to smoke and things like that. So if we look at that as a bit of a, an example, these things do take time to filter down. But I genuinely believe we will look back in, in 20, 30 years and not just on a human health but on an environmental level, on an animal welfare level, we'll look back and go, geez, how did we... How did we get that so wrong? Mm. You know, how did we how did we let that get out of out of hand so badly? So it's a, it's an interesting thing, but I guess the positive and the upside of it is that if you come across this information, and with the internet now, information is so accessible, you can take it into your own hands. Like I said, you can already have existing disease. You might have high cholesterol. You can make changes. Your cholesterol in the last four weeks already guarantee it will have dropped and when we do a blood test again in a couple of months and we sit back down and review it how often should we do these blood tests well i think for the purpose of the podcast we'll probably do one at the three month mark and the six month mark because it'll be very interesting to show people how quickly it changes yep but yeah so i mean yeah, coinciding with that graph you just showed me we'll be able to kind of measure my ri- and watch my risk you know, go yeah def- definitely and i think if we can target that that sort of, you know, 50 to 70 range for you. You've had a history of also some other risk factors. We have to acknowledge that, you know, you, you were overweight for a period. You're not now, which is great. Um, structure. You, you've got that structure there. That's right. It's, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's very evident now. You were, you were smoking for a while. I think I mentioned yeah. that. But you know what? It's, this, all of this can sound a little somber, but as I said, the great thing is we do have the science. If you come across it, you can, you can take it, you can improve your health, you can improve your family's health. So it's, it's, there's reason to be optimistic. Okay, so before we do wrap this episode up, yep. give me a quick update, give the listeners a quick update. How has the last four weeks been for you? I feel lighter. Uh, I'm having some issues where I feel like I'm a little bit tired during the afternoons, but I kind of get a second win and get going again. So that's not too much of an issue. How much exercise are you doing compared to what you were? I'm gone from, you know, exercising sporadically three to four times a week. You know, some weeks will only be one or two to now exercising twice a day, six days a week. Yeah, so you've definitely increased your output. Yeah, I'm definitely working at a calorie deficit. So so I guess, you know, if you're feeling like you're lacking a bit of energy in the afternoon you're and you're, you're in a calorie deficit, you're exercising twice a day, probably to be expected a little bit, but you did tell me as well you lost, it was about four kilos. Yeah, four kilos since uh, yeah. 29th of December. Yeah, so my, my advice to you would be a couple of things we spoke about was one, I know you were doing cardio in the morning. And you were doing your strength workouts in the afternoon, right? Correct. Evening, early yeah. evening. So personally, if you have more energy in the morning, I'd flip that around. Yep. I'd do your strength training in the morning when you have maximum energy and do your cardio in the afternoon. And then I would just keep an eye on your energy and your your weight. 
you don't need to to keep at that sort of four kilo a month pace. No, it? I think that was just the initial everything yeah. dropping off, having a bit of a splurge in barley, and yeah. So I think what often, particularly with guys, is you're 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 consuming less calories, and and plant foods are less calorie dense. So you may be able to include a few more calorie dense plant foods into your meals or snacks, whether that's nuts, seeds, or avocados, things like that yep. through the day, just to to give you a bit more energy through the afternoon and into that cardio workout. How's everything else going? How's how's like the, the cooking with different foods like tempeh and tofu and things? Yeah, I'm I'm not a huge fan of uh, tofu. But I think I'm. I'm gonna, there's two different types of tofu. I've been led to understand. I think I'm doing the one. It's a bit softer. Yeah. So silken tofu is the soft one. Yeah. So I'm going to give the other one a go. But you introduced me to tempeh, and I'm a huge fan. Yeah. So and the cooking, the cooking's actually not as bad as I initially thought it would be. I remember it was a big concern for me. But yeah, I've um, just kind of been doing what I've always been doing, but being more conscious of, say, the teriyaki sauce I'm going to use or the the the, the source I've been making my own ones, opposed to using the ones you know, at the supermarket yeah. that are full of sugar. Yeah, and I just think really we should, we should actually you know explain that you're not only just moving to like a, a plant based diet, you're you're also cutting out all these you know refined carbohydrates that you yeah. you were previously eating. Yeah, and uh, I mean I don't enjoy going to the supermarket anymore because I'm I'm spending a couple of hours there, you know, and I'm, I've gone from. Just going, yep, yeah, I get that, that, and that, and, and getting out of there to looking at every single label, and you know, does this contain traces of milk and and whatnot? And you got to be careful because what I've realised also is a lot of these, you know, it's marketing and pa- the packaging will say vegan friendly or, or whatnot, but then when you look at it, it's just full of sugar or you know, extremely well, high in sodium, and it's actually not that good for you. They so. call that the the halo effect. Yeah, you know, so it can look good on on face value, uh, not so good in terms of ingredients. You do need to be careful, and particularly you know the next couple of years, because this plant based uh, trend is only gaining momentum. Yeah. more brands are only going to jump in, jump on board, and and, and see what they can. Yeah, so yeah. I think just remembering that the basis of the diet should be as much whole foods as possible. You know, I see tempeh as a whole food. When when I'm talking about processed foods, for me. It's not so much the fact that the food might have changed a bit. Look, tempeh, it looks a bit different to soybeans. For me, the problem with processed foods is the addition of salt, oils, and sugar. Yeah, yeah, and sure. And beyond, beyond what exists in nature. Yeah. But I guess, you know, I've got a, um, a pretty busy part of my, um, you know, work, work-life balance kind of coming up and uh, I'm a little concerned. I used to, when I was busy uh, a couple of years ago, I used to do like, you know, getting home meals delivered. So I've been looking online to see, you know, if there's like vegan ones and I found one called, I think it's called Garden of Vegan. Have you heard of them? We don't do plugs on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, like just from a a pre-meal kind of setup, are we able to have a look at those and see if they're... Yeah, I actually, I admittingly, I haven't tried their meals. Yeah, okay. Um, Jack Wilson, who was on this show previously has I've spoken to him about them and I know that he regularly consumes them and says they taste great. Yep. And I have had a look at their sort of the nutrition they use and what they stand for and yep. everything seems great. I mean they're they're um, using organic produce. They don't really add, you know, oils or sugars to their food. So I think for you, great option. Yep. Um, also a great option to when you're when you're buying meals like this the the neat thing is because I know that you still want to be able to cook and stuff on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. And 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 learn 
you know, through cooking, you learn, but you also learn through through doing these meals, like with, you know, Garden Vegan, in that when it turns up, you can look at the ingredients, you can see how many calories it is, and you start to get a bit of a feel for eyeballing. Okay, yeah, plant, yeah. plant-based meal, that's four or 500 calories. Not that I'm a huge proponent of people counting their calories. Some people may in certain circumstances, but I think it's a, it's a nice skill to have to be able to look at a, a bowl or a meal that you make and go, okay, that's about five, 600 calories, that's about right for yeah. me. And that, that will help you. Yeah, for sure. So we're not against the pre-made meal type scenario? No, I mean, th- those are fresh meals that yeah. are coming through that company. I think that's – my thing is in this transition, and this is why I think we've had some conversations and we were talking about, you know, sriracha and various sauces and, and whatnot. My thing is not about being completely perfect. If ordering ready-made meals from, say, Garden Vegan – and these are very healthy meals. If that helps you with your transition and you're more adherent and... Well, it's, it's out of pure convenience. Like, you know, we, we spoke about last time my lifestyle and I'm, I'm on the road a lot to just have a meal there ready to go. Yeah, if that's going to stop you going in and grabbing a, a quarter pound of meal <laughs> um, or or not even just a quarter pound of meal, just, just, you know, just grabbing fried chips or something, yeah. absolutely. I think it's 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 only going to help you experience more flavors. You're going to get ideas. Your palate's going to expand. Is it a necessity for everyone listening? It depends on your circumstances. Oh, yeah, for sure. If, if you lead a super busy lifestyle, then I think meal, meal prep through companies or whether you do it yourself is really advantageous. Well, I mean, that's the other thing. I, I, I was led to believe that becoming plant-based was going to be super expensive. And I've actually found it quite the opposite because I'm no longer built like buying, you know, marinated chicken that's like eight bucks. I'm using a can of beans instead and putting a bit of smoke, uh, what is it, smoked? Um, paprika. Paprika. Yeah. You know, and, and that's costing me, a, you know, yeah. a dollar or something. Yeah, I think... Again, there's probably two sides to this conversation. There's there's a there's a degree of privilege that we need to acknowledge. If if you're, you know, on a really really low budget, then I can understand that some of the convenient, quick junk foods, right, are super cheap, and that's hard. That's that's a problem with our environment. I think the the general food environment. You know, and then sure, whole food plants are cheap, but you know, products like tempeh and stuff they are a little bit more expensive. But what, where you're right is if you're eating a omnivorous diet and you're buying your marinated chickens or your grass-fed beef or grass-fed eggs or uh, wild salmon and you transition to a plant-based diet, you're saving a lot of money. A hundred percent. Because those products are super expensive. Yeah, yep. Okay, so that's your that's how you've been going, I guess, from a food-wise, energy-wise, anything else to report on before? No, I guess, I mean, I've just been overwhelmed and um, very humbled by the messages of support that have uh, been sent through to you and um, absolutely love and appreciate all the all of that. So, um, yeah, I'm going to start. I've decided to start documenting my journey a little bit more and how I'm going to do that I, I don't quite know yet. But, um, yeah, I just, yeah, appreciate it and keep it coming, guys. Okay, cool. So when when you do work out how you're going to put that together, I will post a, a a link in the show notes or something on social media so that people listening can jump over and and follow you and send you words of encouragement and see what you're doing on a day to day basis. Also, you did mention to me you are looking to to take your fitness 
up another level and potentially yes. work towards some form of challenge. I yeah, guess. I, I just feel like my whole life I've you know played sport, well, my whole life until the last five or six years I've played sport and there's always been some sort of goal. And um, I'm, I'm training and I'm like, I'm like, what am I actually trying to achieve here? Where am I going? What am I doing? So with that in mind, between now and next episode, I'm going to do some research. I'm going to come up with some form of challenge. Yeah, okay. Some form of physical related, fitness related challenge that you and I can do together. Perhaps the plant proof community, those that want to get involved can also get involved and, and come along. Um, and maybe even like something like a, a fun run because I can't run, man. So yeah, leave it with me. I'm gonna. Yeah. I'll, I'll find something that gives us enough time. Preparation wise, is something that's going to be fun, and maybe we can do it for a good cause and raise some money and things. Yeah, like that'd that. be great, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Could catch up. We'll we'll end that one here and have you back on the show in a month or so. See how you're going with the the meals from Garden Vegan. See how you're continuing the transition. See how you're going with general conversation with yep. those around you. And I think I did make a point before why I said that I sort of understand why people are are sending this information to you. And it's a culmination of product of our environment being told for so many years, indoctrinated really, to believe that we need these products. So often early on, you know, in your position now, you no doubt feel like you've You've, you've come across this information and you feel like, why the hell didn't I know no this? Why didn't I know this many years ago? But it makes no sense why everyone else doesn't know it. Yeah. Like I wasn't looking. I was in a show. Like you got these really healthy people. You know, a friend of mine is a, is a fitness person, you know, bodybuilder guy. And I mean, like why is he eating meat? Well, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons, but even if you if you go into the, the bodybuilding culture, for example, a lot of it's bro science, a lot of it's built on, you know, how to, how to, how to build muscle. No doubt about it, you can eat meat and, and build muscle. I'm not going to deny that. But you often see, you know, pseudoscience and people within that community saying, oh, it's about moderation or it's about, <laughs> they throw, use these throwaway lines. And I used to use them myself. Mm. This is why I know them. Used to say things about, oh, no, 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 it's all okay in moderation. What does that mean? Used to say things like, oh, you know, as long as it's the source, as long as it's organic or grass-fed, and that made me feel good. But, mate, I'm telling you now that I know the science. Whilst there might be slight differences in, in the nutritional composition, the science is not telling people to move from uh, feedlot, factory farmed beef to grass-fed beef for health. It's not. It's telling people to move towards as many calories from whole plant foods and that's super clear. But I think, you know, you've got this information, you feel like people should know it and you often want to shout it out. I understand, I understand why people, uh, you know, used to say that, you know, some vegans are annoying. It's because, like, you know, I've, I've just got all this information and I want them to to see the light as well. I think it brings a good point. I think probably the most important thing for you right now is to hear people, to listen, right? Rather than, you know, you found this information, it'd be very easy to sort of shout it out. I think just just hear them, just take it in as you've been doing. We can discuss it on here. Have some patience. You're going to need some patience because, you know, the beliefs that they're sharing with you have been developed over decades. They yeah. take a while to unwind. You're not going to have one conversation usually with someone that on the spot changes their mind. So I think honestly the best thing for you to do there is just focus on what you can control, yeah. which is your diet, 
your knowledge that you're improving and just continuing to make improvements with this transition and everything else will fall in place. No worries, man. All right, mate. Good to see you again. Look forward to catching up in a few weeks. Yeah, me too. Cheers, mate. Well, there we go, friends. I hope you took something away from this episode. I know I certainly did. As I said in the intro, it's it's actually really, really good for me to sit down with someone that is genuinely confused about what to eat and slightly skeptical. It's it's all well and good talking with experts, but we have to be able to communicate the message, the, the science to those who have busy lives and are not reading science all day. So yeah, I'm definitely enjoying this little series with Sean. If you are too, please share your feedback on social media. I would love to hear what you think and and, and share it with Sean. And in the coming weeks when Sean has an Instagram profile, I will share the link so that those who are interested can get behind his journey. Also in the show notes, I will put links to each and every one of the studies and dietary guidelines that I spoke about that were mentioned during the episode. Okay, friends, that's all for this one. If you do have time and can leave a quick review on the Apple iTunes podcast app, that would be absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate every single one of you. Let's wrap this up here. I'll see you in the next episode. Adios, amigos.